If I understand Father Richard Rohr correctly, what he is saying is that when I see something as beautiful, it triggers a connection between what's inside of me and God's grace. Those things that I call beautiful are a reminder that God is good. So I brought a couple of pictures to show you this morning, things that I looked at this week and thought were beautiful. That's in my backyard. Okay, this is a little bit of bragging. <laughs> That's a bougainvillea. And I sat across from it this week in a chair and thought, "That's really beautiful." And the next one also shows the gardening skills I've acquired in the last couple of years. That's a lilac. I planted it uh, a couple of years ago and man, it's taken off. Woo. If it if this were an accurate representation, I would probably throw some photos of my family up there. Because I keep pictures of my family in my office. They're on my phone. When I look at pictures of people that I love, I call them beautiful, right? And then I was also thinking about my phone. My screensaver has a piece of artwork that I really love that I call beautiful. And when I see those images or when I see something in nature and I call it beautiful, it is that resonance, that harmony between the truth that's inside of me and God's goodness. The scripture passage that we have for today is a poem. It is poetry. So it is meant to evoke that resonance as well. It was written when the Israelites were exiled in Babylon. You know this passage. It's the first part of Genesis. For some, um, this poem is so familiar to us that we fail to recognize its beauty. For others of us, others have tried to overlay modern Western values on top of this poem, like history and science. And, and while the scripture, so there's a strength to it, um, maybe it can withstand the pressure and make for a fun argument. But when we call this science, or when we call this first part of Genesis history, when we do that, we fail to see the beauty in it. We miss it. We miss the resonance of, that occurs between the yearning inside of us and the reality that God is good. This poem is meant to evoke that. One theologian wrote that to see this passage as science is like taking a Fabergé egg. You guys know what the Fabergé eggs are. Taking a Fabergé egg, breaking it open, and expecting to see a yolk. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. This is poetry. Read it as poetry, hear it as poetry. So you've been given a copy on that cardstock. I would just encourage you to take it home. Take it home, read it aloud some point this week. As with all scripture, when you read it aloud, you get some clarity. And so I'm gonna read for you the first five verses of this passage. I'm not gonna use the message this time. But instead, I'm going to use the Orthodox Jewish Bible. And the Orthodox Jewish Bible has some of the words in Hebrew. And because this passage was first written in Hebrew, I thought it might be important for us to hear some of those words. In the beginning, Elohim created Hashemayim, the heavens, and Haaretz, the earth. And the earth was Tohu Vavohu, without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
and the Ruach Elohim was hovering upon the face of the waters. And Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. And Elohim saw the light, that it was tov, good. And Elohim divided the or, light, from the chosek, darkness. And Elohim called the light yom, day, and the darkness he called Lila, night. And the Erev, evening, and the Bokor, morning, were Yom Echad, day one, the first day. This is the poetry of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. So a part of the beauty of this poem is the structure, especially for someone like me who likes things evenly divided and likes to see structure. What happens in this poem is that what's created in day one is then filled in day three. So in day one, day and night are created. I'm I'm sorry, in day four. Yeah, day four, the sun, moon, and stars are created. So day one is created, then it's filled by day four. Day two is created, and it's filled by day five. Day three is created and it's filled by day six. And that leads seven all by itself as the pinnacle of creation. Do you remember what seven is? What's created last? Sabbath, yeah, rest, the pinnacle of creation. And then the individual days of creation also follow a structure. They also follow a very careful sequence of categories. And there are five categories that happen in each day of creation. There's time, command, execution, assessment, and then time happens again. And so time sounds like this. There was evening and there was morning. So time kind of ends up being like the bread in a multi-layered sandwich. You're gonna hear that again and again in this poem. There was evening and there was morning. And the command sounds like this, let there be. And the execution is, and it was so. And the assessment is always the same. The assessment is always tov, or good, until day six, where it's very tov, very good. Now, I have to wonder if there's not, there's not a reassurance that would first have been heard by the Israelites who were exiled in Babylon that what looks like chaos, that what looks like disorder, that what looks like despair or nothing can be ordered and can be called good. That this is the will of the creator to work with us wherever we are in dark, chaotic times to bring forth beauty. I have this tendency to call some things bad you know, like test grades, (laughs) illness, betrayal, diets. My doctors put me on a diet for three weeks and it is bad. (laughs) But this passage calls on me to check my tendency to label things as bad and instead to rightly adhere the title chaos and hand the thing over to God hand the chaos over to God. Not one time in this passage 
does Elohim see that it, the thing that's created, is bad? No, God's creating work always produces something that the Orthodox Jewish Bible calls, to- calls tov, or good. I believe that there's really great potential in allowing God to be involved. St. Julian of Norwich lived in the 14th century, and uh, four different times during her life, the Black Death swept through her village, and it is said that the plague killed over half of the people in the town in Norwich where she lived. Some say that she began to counsel and to live at the church because her husband and her children were killed by the plague. Her writings take place in the tension of two realities that she knew to be true. One of those realities is that darkness exists, chaos exists, the reality of sin and evil. And the other truth that she knew to be true was that God was good. God's love was good. In that tension, she looks to the truth of the cross and she chooses a side. This is what she says in her writing. Love's vulnerability is finally stronger than sin's power to kill. She chooses God's grace. She chooses love's vulnerability. Love's vulnerability, she says, creates new things, creates a new world. When theologian Walter Brueggemann writes about this first creation story, he says, it's a declaration of the gospel. This first creation story is God's good news that what we know as chaos can become a new world and that new world surges with the mystery of God's grace, God's gracious, empowering speech. So I think it's important for us to think about what God says. What is it that God says in this first creation story? The very first phrase that's spoken in our passage and in the Bible, for that matter, is let there be light. Let there be light. That's verse 3 of Genesis 1. The Bible begins and God speaks immediately. And I love that because In the Bible and in life too, what a person says tells us a lot about who they are. And what God says, when God speaks, creation happens. When God speaks, there is creation. Let there be light. And then throughout this first chapter are the words, let there be. Let there be. Now, I have always heard those lines spoken with a really deep, commanding voice, as if to say, there will be light. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the text says. It says, let there be light, which leaves room for the working materials. And in day one, that's the heavens and the earth. It leaves room for those working materials to say, no, we are not going to cooperate. We are not doing that. I totally get it as a 48-year-old. I didn't get it as a child. I only heard, there will be light. There will be sky. 
There will be sea. There will be plants. There will be sun, moon, and stars. But once you've served in a place of authority, I think you get it. Just because you give instruction doesn't mean that it's going to be followed, right? Ask anyone in here, in here who is a parent or a teacher. We all get that. We all get that. I walk down the hallway of my house every night, and I speak the words, go to bed. Don't stay up too late. Get in your bed. But that doesn't mean that it always happens every night. No, I'm trying to give permission, but I have to have some buy-in, right? God's creative words give permission. God's creative words give permission for creation to occur. Let there be. And God is not an authoritarian. God is authoritative, but God is not oppressive. Not like the Babylonian gods. This is not a must be. This is a let it be. Our God speaks possibility. And I think I would want to add that as a parent or a teacher or a mentor, we really do those things well when we speak possibility over people. I can remember I had an academic counselor when I was a senior in high school. He called me to his office to talk about my plans for college, and he said these words to me, I hope that you go to graduate school. I hope that you go further than a bachelor's degree. And I heard the first words, and I finished them in my head, and this is what I thought he was going to say. I hope you get through college, because I'm not sure you can do it. (laughs) But no, that's not what he said. Instead, he spoke words of possibility over me. I hope you go to graduate school. You can do that. You should do that. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I think that means speak good things to your children. Speak possibility. I tend in my house to kind of overemphasize structure, good diet, um, you know, going to bed on time, clean rooms. <laughs> that, that stuff is all just gravy. It's not really what the best parents do. You know, that's just specific to my personality type, a one on the Enneagram. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is calling out gifts. Calling out the gifts in our children. Speaking possibility to them. There's nothing creative about a command. It's my experience that a command will backfire. Especially if you have one of those echoes in your house, right? Did you see that story this week about the echo? The echo in Oregon that um, recorded a conversation, really a fight between a couple. They were fighting about the flooring in their home. And what the echo thought it heard, supposedly, the echo thought that it heard record. And then it thought that it heard send the conversation to people on your contact list. <laughs> so the fight went to, <laughs> went to people on the contact list. Yeah, because they were speaking forcefully <laughs> to one another. <laughs> the things that I have um, forced with a command aren't that great. They're not creative. They're not creative. One of the ways that I like to think 
about the spoken words in this creation story is that they are all words of invitation. Words of invitation lead to collaboration that then lead to something good. I don't think that the Holy Spirit, the text calls the Holy Spirit the Ruach Elohim hovering above the waters. I don't think that the Holy Spirit has much patience for heavy-handed dictators. I think the Holy Spirit's just not going to mess with us when we act like that. I heard one of my favorite interviewers, Krista Tippett, say this week, it never has happened in all of human history that someone changed because they were told how stupid they were. Man, that's a shame because I kind of have a list. (laughs) Tippett was interviewing a young man named Derek Black. And Derek Black grew up in a white supremacist family. He was, I suppose still is, the godson of David Duke. Derek's family created, his father created what some refer to as the first major uh, hate website on the internet. And he was at one time the grand wizard of the KKK. Derek said that he had a background of being grilled and he could confuse people on the topic of separating races. He went to college in Florida and he was outed on campus by a group text, by a group post that went out. And some of the responses in that group text went like this. One person replied by saying, He chooses to be a racist public figure. We choose to call him a racist in public. Another person said, I want this guy to die a painful death, along with his entire family. Is that too much to ask? But there was an interesting, and I would say rare, thing that happened. One of the only Orthodox Jews on campus a young man named Matthew Stevenson decided to invite Derek to his weekly Shabbat dinners that he held at his apartment. It wasn't a completely random invitation. They knew one another from a few classes and they knew one another from a movie watching group that they attended together. And over the course of two years and a lot of enjoyable dinners and long talks with friends that he made at those dinners, Derek changed his mind. He renounced an ideology that he had been formed by because it no longer matched the reality of his experience. Something new was created from darkness. Something new was created from chaos. I heard Elizabeth Gilbert say that creativity is birthed in our lives when we choose curiosity over fear. That's what Matthew Stevenson did. He chose curiosity over fear. Creation didn't end in seven days. Creation is ongoing. God is continually looking for collaborators, and you and I are called to collaborate. So choose curiosity Extend invitations and speak possibility. 
When we do those things, I think we then hear that still small voice that says, it is good. It is good. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You created and filled the world, and you continue to create. You continue to make new. We all seek, every one of us seek to be collaborators with you. And so would you birth in each of us creative curiosity? Would you birth in each of us the courage to overcome fear? We want to be disciples of the ultimate image of love's vulnerability, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.